This is Omo. 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 Everybody, welcome to season five. Hi. Oh my gosh. Season five? Yeah. I'm I'm here. I'm Rosie Deloach. I'm here with my co-host Jerry Lynn. Hi, Jerry. Hi, Rosie. When I sent you an email six years ago asking if I could be a part of Oberlin, did you automatically think, you know what? I bet we're gonna work together on a podcast. <laughs> No, but ironically, prior to maybe not ironically, that's a poor use of the word. Uh, but prior to meeting you, I, I through social media, I learned you had another podcast called yeah. Rabbit Hole Motel, yes. and I listened to that, and it's like she's kind of kooky, but it, it's going to be fun. And uh, yeah, yeah, and then we the rest on Chris Jacoby. Um, uh huh. And the, yeah, and that we would have another friend who was like, "Hey, hey, make a podcast, make a podcast with me," and then a few years later, be like. Hey, dude, I got I got too much going on, and then and here we are. But I still love it. I love being a yeah. part of this. Yeah, <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah, wonderful community that we have. Yeah, I've loved meeting so many delightful people. I've loved learning more about this world of Luthery, all all its pockets, all its little bits and ways of doing this, and and different kinds of experts. Mm. It's been such, it, I, I've told people this has felt like my graduate school, understanding on a different level, this whole world that I, I, I was very outsider at the time when we started this. It's a lot. Like people, <laughs> musicians have no idea. I yeah. mean, let's face it, musicians know very little about their own instruments, if we're being completely honest, and they've got no idea about the rest of the Luthery world. Yeah. So, you know, I, I hear you. I hear you. Yeah. Yeah. So how has this experience been for you? You know, it's been, obviously it must be great because I'm still here. Um, <laughs> you know, I, people contact me a lot and they tell me things now. A lot of it is, is really positive. I also hear, uh, unfortunately, a lot of really dark things. You know, I hear about the way people are treated where they're working. I hear about poor experiences. So I think one of the things that keeps me coming back is the ability to help be the change that, that I seek. And, uh, we have a wonderful vehicle here for that. So yes. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's, that's how it's been for me. It's, it's meeting more people, hearing more things, I've had one or two experiences where I've been creeped out uh, at the VSA convention in uh, your hometown. Mm-hmm. I Dallas. got in Dallas. Yeah, I got in an elevator and there was a bunch of people and I hear this voice in the back going, that's the voice that soothes me. And I, <laughs> or something like that. I turn around and it's like MJ Kwan, like dropping her voice down like an octave. And <laughs> that's awesome. I had an experience where I was I was visiting a shop um, in southern New Jersey, and this guy starts talking to me like he knows me, and it was a podcast listener. Mm-hmm. I wasn't creeped out, but it was just kind of this this thing that uh, people recognize you, they talk to you, and they feel like they really know you, and yet I've you know until that moment I, I don't know anything about them. So yeah, that's kind of yeah. cool and crazy too at the same time. Yes. I have to say my experience at the Anaheim convention, I I knew before I went there that there was a possibility of everybody knowing who I was. And I didn't know how I was. I I, I had best of intentions, but I also thought maybe I'm going to need some social breaks. Maybe, <laughs> maybe it'll be weird sometimes. Uh, I will say that everybody that I talked to, shook hands with, was beyond awesome and classy. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was it was a delightful experience. And also just easy to cut straight to like, hey, I know you, you know me. And then I just start asking them like, where are you from? What do you mm-hmm. do? Um, mm-hmm. 
So I, I enjoyed it a whole lot. Um, something you mentioned earlier about hearing the dark stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've had to develop a little bit of a, a personal philosophy mm-hmm. that here at Omo, I'm looking for the gold. Mm-hmm. And if I am looking at the dirt, I'm not going to find the gold. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, of course, everybody's got a darker side to some small degree or another. But uh, we're here to find the best of people, um, to find the best solutions we can when we can affect change. And um, it's been awesome being a part of that. I hear you. So, And speaking of gold. Gold. We have <laughs> an amazing <Gold>. guest. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Uh, Bill Scott, also known as William Scott, I think, I think that's what he puts in his violins. Uh, and, uh, he's just a, an impressive human in, in so many ways. Uh, a little bit of a bio. He starts in this humble place. He says that he completed his first violin through book knowledge, <laughs> which is great. Uh, and, and from there, Bill has built up his connections and relationships, and he's gotten involved in just about every organization possible up to becoming VSA president recently, and uh, just shares his knowledge with so many people. Um, There was a woman that reached out to us a few years ago who was looking for a better apprenticeship opportunity, and I was so happy to hear that she was working with Bill. Oh, it just made my day. So hi, Heather. That's wonderful. Yeah. Uh, anything else we need to add before we just jump into this? No, he's a, he's a great guy. Yeah. Like, uh, we should have disclosure here that we've already recorded the interview, so we know yeah. how much of a great guy he is. So, But it, yeah. he lives up to the hype. He's a great guy. I, I told you he was going to be great. He's, he's great. <laughs> All right. Uh, after the break, Bill Scott. Special thanks to Learning Trade Secrets for supporting this episode of OMO. I'd like to mention that I first met Bill at an LTS workshop. He is a well of information when it comes to making and a wonderful human as well. I cannot say enough about what a difference it can make in your work to have an accomplished set of eyes looking at your instrument. And while Bill can critique, he's nice about it. You can sign up for the Making Master Class Workshop July 30th through August 4th by visiting learningtradesecrets.com. There's lots of other great courses available through the summer months. Perhaps it's time you finally mastered your varnish game. Check out Classic Italian Varnish this May 7th through 12th with Chris Germain. Again, sign up today and level up your knowledge at learningtradesecrets.com. Next time you're traveling through the Twin Cities, you'd be dull as a used fingerboard plane to miss visiting House of Note. Located in St. Louis Park, you'll find the people of House of Note taking care of players at every level from the beginner student to the Minnesota Orchestra performer. Don't you know? House of Note has built their reputation over the years on being kind, fair, and honest. Pop in and you're likely to find Jeff picking out hairs for a bow rehair, while nearby Lyle is getting the symmetry perfect on a cello neck set. You may find Erin carving a stellar bridge for a new violin setup while Nick perfects the fit of a soundpost patch, and Ty is putting that final polish on a new set of ebony pegs that fit just so. If you can't visit these guys in person, check out houseofnote.com where you can view a wide selection of bows and showroom instruments or sign up for an instrument rental online. House of Note, by musicians, for musicians. Everybody, welcome back to OMO. I have with me my co-host, Jerry Lynn. Hey, Rosie. And we have Bill Scott here. Hi, Bill. I'm glad to be here. This is a, a privilege and an honor. Thank you so much for inviting me. Oh, thanks for coming. And we'll just jump right on in. You, Bill, you and your wife, Susan, in the 80s, moved across the country to apprentice for the Visar shop in Los Angeles. Uh, it was a bit of a financial sacrifice for the both of you. Why was it important for you to work there? Well, actually, 
I moved out there on my own, leaving my pregnant wife back in Minneapolis. Wow. <laughs> wow. Uh, she was she was three months pregnant when when I moved out to L.A. and and living with my parents. And fortunately, I was able to return for a short spell back to Minneapolis while our son was born. Our first son was was born, and then they moved out to L.A. two weeks after uh, he was two weeks old when they came out to join me in Los Angeles. And uh, so that kind of puts it a little bit in perspective how important it was here. Here I was leaving yeah. uh, my my wife uh, and, and future son. Well, I had first met uh, Hans Weissar uh, back in 1980 at, a, at the first VSA comp- uh, convention competition. I had been very impressed, of course, with his knowledge and, and um, expertise. And and as I talked to more and more um, makers, as I got to meet other makers, I realized how influential he was in our in our trade and uh, in the training, actually, of, of many very competent and, and accomplished uh, makers. And I thought, boy, wouldn't that be a an exciting opportunity for me, but I was just starting out, uh, you know, pretty much self-taught at that point. Um, so I was a little shy to approach him uh, in 1980, but in 1982, at the next uh, VSA competition, I was fortunate enough to uh, win a couple awards that gave me the confidence to approach him. Actually, I approached Margaret because I was a little nervous about talking to him directly, but I knew she was connected and, and influential in the shop decisions. So I did approach her. Uh, we worked out a, uh, an arrangement uh, that I sent them, eventually sent them my resume and, and all that. Uh, and it worked out to do a trial run at, at the shop there in Los Angeles um, the following year, um, and uh, which led to my joining the firm then in 1984. I think it was yeah, January of 84. Mm-hmm. I didn't know the bit about your family. That's that's a lot. That's wild. You and I talked about uh, getting paid. 325 a week and over half of that going to rent. So I, I had known that angle, but it sounds like a lot of stresses. There were, I mean, you, you mentioned the financial part. I mean, of course, I think our, our business, there are always financial uh, challenges. My going to that first VSA meeting, which transformed my life, I had to borrow money to buy a hot dog and a, and a soda uh, because I was out of cash and it was before ATM machines and I had to wait for money to be wired <laughs> to me uh, <laughs> in New York uh, from my parents. You know, you'd have to go to a post office and get the. You know, it was it was a big sacrifice for, for me back then. Um, so I but it was such high priority. <clears throat> and I realized um, it was important to connect uh, in any way I could. And obviously the, uh, things like the VSA were, uh, the first step in that journey of connections. So everybody who moves to Los Angeles seems to have a crazy LA story, you know, like you're, you're stuck in traffic somewhere, you know, Oh, I was in a supermarket and somebody pulls a gun. Uh, so you're there with a young family in this big, crazy city. Does anything like that happen to you while you're trying to settle in and start to learn more? I mean, was it a big culture shock? Well, I, you know, I had traveled quite extensively uh, throughout my life up until that point. Uh, so it wasn't, you know, what really caught me then just about gave me a heart attack the first time I was in Los Angeles was when I was stuck on the Ventura Highway. And all of a sudden, this motorcycle comes zooming between lanes, and I literally, my heart stopped. I, I, I didn't realize that it was legal for motorcycles to pass between lanes in Los Angeles. And uh, that was one thing I'll never forget. It's like someone coming up to your um, your window, and you're not expecting anyone in a car, and they, they 
pound on your window and you think you're going to be attacked or something. You know, it's, it's sort of that type of a, a memory that I had. Um, L.A. was um, we lived in Burbank uh, in a nice okay. little community called Toluca Lake. And I was very fortunate. It was only a 15, 20 minute commute to the workshop in North uh, Hollywood, yeah, across the Hollywood Hills there. And, and uh, unless there was uh, some crash or something that delayed traffic, it was a relatively straightforward commute for me, which is considerably short for yeah. L.A. standard. I, I remember reading once that the average uh, commuting time, in, at least in Orange County, was like 45 minutes each way. And so for me to be able to get to work in 15, 20 minutes was you know, a really fortunate because we, you know, like I said, we lived in Burbank and, but it was a very nice community. So the culture was, I mean, we enjoyed it. So there was no um, trauma other than that, uh, that, experience <laughs> that I had uh, on the highway uh, that first time, not knowing that motorcycles might come zooming by at, you know, 30, okay. 30 miles an hour when you're standing still in traffic. Yeah. You know, so. <laughs> And I don't think we mentioned where you moved from, your hometown. Minneapolis. Yeah. Got it. At that time, uh, we were living um, at my parents' house, which was in you know, just west of town. And we, we live uh, right now, we currently live just a couple of miles from that same location, just west of downtown yeah. Minneapolis. Yeah. When you and I were talking, you mentioned your education initially being a little bit more self-taught, learning from others around you, and you looking for violin knowledge that was more systematic. Tell me a little bit about finding that at the Vicar shop. I don't know what self-taught really means, because obviously we're learning from what others have done. Mm -hmm. I wasn't a product of a violin making school. I, I hadn't, obviously hadn't apprenticed anywhere. I was working at a violin shop downtown Minneapolis that was originally very well established, but the original owner had passed away. Uh, a, a friend of the family took over the shop and he, he was, you know, ran it capably, but he didn't have a, a lot of extensive training. So I would pick up a few things from him, uh, you know, mostly bow uh, rehairing and some minor bow repair stuff. Uh, but the, the violin making part was all from... Uh, pretty much just some books, you know, like the Heron Allen book. Um, My very first violin was uh, You Can Make a Stradivarius by uh, (laughs) a guy named Canadian, I think, Joseph Reed. Yeah, I think it was a popular mechanics book. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. There were were things in popular mechanics too. Uh, But I remember seeing some of those articles. Um, But I realized I needed something a little more practical and and like you said systematic and and my introduction at uh, going to that VSA uh, convention and competition I did bring an instrument with me I brought my um, fourth instrument that I had made a viola so I had something to show people to get feedback and that was sort of the beginning of my um, interaction I, there was a violin maker also here in town, um, Arnie Anderson, who had just come back from the Cremona Violin Making School. Uh, And so he would give me pointers, of course, and whenever I could spend time with him, I did. Um, But I needed something to further my development, and I realized uh, finding an apprenticeship was probably the most practical thing. I, I did apply, I should... I don't know if I told you this, uh, Rosie. I did apply to the Violin Making School of America. I don't know if I mentioned that. No, you didn't show that. I had I had uh, made a violin in the white, and I went out there for my um, application process or whatever they call that. Um, and I was the only one in that group that had made a violin. You know, so they had they had us doing things, you know, to test our tool making skills. And I remember blood everywhere all these <laughs> other people we were, we were cutting sea sea bouts uh, on some spruce that had been given to us um with a pattern and and our our job was to make it as close to that pattern as as we could with a little cutting uh, carving knife 
<laughs> there were blood all over the place. But I mean, for me, that was a relatively simple process because I was familiar working with spruce, you know, with the green mm-hmm. shoes and all that. And then it went well. Uh, I was, you know, they said, you're certainly welcome to come back. But somehow I got talked out of going to the school, which I sort of regret now in hindsight, because um, that would have been 1976. And I would have met some of my heroes much sooner than I did waiting till 1980 to to go to a violin com- convention, you know, but that's another story. Um, sure. <laughs> but that's why I realized I needed to pursue yeah. education. So you get to this shop and you're looking for wider knowledge of repairs and restoration. And one of the first things that they do is hand you a typed out document and ask you to do every major repair known in restoration based on their directions only. So there's no photos. This would later become the Vicar book. That sounds like a Tell- huge amount of hazing, actually. That sounds like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, let's get this to the new guy. <laughs> uh-huh. Tell us all about that. Well, right off the bat, I, I felt so fortunate, first of all, being able to go there. And then to have this opportunity to do restore, uh, restoration projects that most of us, many of which I've, I've never, I don't know how many of those things that I did uh, as a kind of a test run for the book. I haven't done most of those things since then, other than neck grafts and, um, you know, basic repairs. I, I haven't done a, a rib graft. I haven't done a volute graft, you know, so it was quite an experience for me to be able to to do those as they, you know, this was over a period of six, nine months that uh, as they finished different chapters of the book that they would bring this um, to me. The, 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 the goal was uh, Margaret would come to me with this text and then some a few drawings that might be on there and say, Bill, we want you to do this project, but you can't consult with anyone. And only if you if only if you can't understand it, we will rewrite it. But we can't actually show you how to do it. And we have there's no no, like looking over at someone else's workbench to see how they're handling it. It's all you. Yeah. And and like you said, there were no photographs for me to follow because um, they didn't have any uh, uh, for the book. So all the stuff that. I was doing were the photographs that are in that book uh, of a lot of those repairs uh, that that, uh, Rosie mentioned. So for me, it was uh, somewhat daunting to say the least. Um, But there were only a few few chapters where I really needed um, further um, explanation or uh, clarification. Um, so most of them I was able to kind of follow point by point and, and did, a, I think, a reasonably good job. I think that the, the test was you had to have um, – they wanted this book to be available to makers who certainly understood tools, who understood basic um, violin uh, skills, had the basic skills, but hadn't the actual – procedure. And so I was a perfect candidate because I could certainly make a violin. I could uh, I could handle tools relatively well. I mean, I have gotten a couple certificates in workmanship or artisanship now it's called at the VSA competition. So it was, you know, it wasn't like I was a complete uh, newbie. Um, and so I think it was a perfect um, opportunity for them. And, and, and uh, I was lucky to be the one to be part of it because it gave me experience with all these interesting uh, procedures that I, you know, like I said, which I haven't done since. So were you sequestered away from other people? Were you like in a corner of the shop? Was there a shop (laughs) betting pool? Like, is Bill going to make this happen or not? I I can't imagine. There must've been lots of money exchanging hands. I'm sure. Um, (laughs) No, I, I, I was just, we were all lined up, uh, and I, at the time that I arrived, um, the downs there were two there were two uh, levels of the shop. The lower level was mostly violin 
work, you know, the instruments in the upper level was the bow makers. There were like three bow makers up there. And then there were like five of us on the lower level. It was Hans, Margaret. I think I sat next to Margaret. And then different makers came and went. Um, next to me on the right, there was Bernard Camura, uh, uh, who was there the whole time I was there. Um, uh, there were other makers, like I said, that came and went. Uh, so there were... But I was not sequestered, no. But I wasn't allowed to ask any of them what to do. <laughs> that was, I mean, it was, I think Margaret kept an eye on me to make sure I didn't cheat, oh. you know, <laughs> uh, possibly. Um, the pressure was was great, but it was self-imposed, I, I would say, because I think Margaret mentioned this in the podcast that you did with her, Rosie, that, you know, Hans's standards were so high that everyone kind of assimilated that same level. Now, did all of us attain that same level? Probably not. But uh, there was, so you, you obviously had a pressure that was built in just from being there because the, the quality of work was, was so good, you know? So I think that went into what I was doing. Um, It wasn't like there was no one with a, whip or something over my back making sure that I did it uh, did it right yeah. um, <laughs> I remember you mentioned that this was part of getting you into the American Federation your work with this book yeah as I mentioned I hadn't gone to a school so um, when I finished at Visars and then came back moved back to Minneapolis um, I set up my own workshop and started working and making instruments. The uh, American Federation of Violin and Boat Makers was uh, initiated. Um, that was in the process when I was still at Visars. I think it was um, uh, originated in 1985 or something like that, or 84. I, I forget what year it um, was initiated. I mean, um, you know, created. But uh, I remember Hans talking about it and, and Margaret talking about it. I remember Margaret taking the journeyman exam to, to get into it. I remember that. Uh, that was the, one of the few people that actually did the full journeyman exam uh, to qualify for being a member of the uh, Federation. Um, so I you know, it was in the back, back of my mind to apply at some point, but I, I didn't fulfill the three, uh, requirements were three years of school, three years, mm-hmm. three year apprenticeship and three years of business on your own. You know, that, that was the general guidelines to apply for the Federation. So when I applied, uh, I was encouraged to apply, I think by Hans or, or I can't remember who said, go ahead. Anyhow, you hadn't gone to a school. <laughs> I, I hadn't gone to a school. I had only had a two-year apprenticeship, and I had worked on my own for three years at that point. So I think I applied back in, in 87 or so. It must have been or something like that because uh, I, I left Visars in 85, the end of 85. So I think well, it must have been 88 or something like that. But um, I had been working though before that, so maybe I – counted some of those years maybe that's how I qualified because I okay. and so when when it came up for the when the board started reviewing my application everyone was saying well he has no right to be applying for this I mean he hasn't fulfilled and then there was a, a guy there um, he knew that I had done a, a lot of the repairs most of the repairs that were in the book uh and, and he presented that to the group and said, you know, Bill obviously has the skill set here. It's not, he's won certificates of uh, workmanship at numerous competitions now. And uh, uh, so that was, that's what helped get me into the American Federation was the fact that I had that background at Visars with, with some evidence of what I had done, you know, not just uh, not just the, you know, the application information, but actually evidence, you know, documented evidence. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. So you're someone who has a reputation of being a, a very accomplished maker. 
did your time working through these these repair notes is that something that still sticks with you today when you are making an instrument this logical approach of step one step two step three uh, is any of that still stuck in there from that time or is it as time washed it away yeah i'd like to say that i'm very logical but i'm still more seat of the pants um <laughs> i have colleagues and friends that i am very envious of and probably should take more um more lessons from in the fact that they're much more organized and um about their approach <laughs> but i you know the problem is so much of it becomes part of you that you forget where you yeah where you acquired it i mean i know that the uh, workshops at oberlin all the years that i've been attending that there's so much there that i've taken on that i don't even remember where i got it you know and i think mm -hmm. that experience at vicar certainly had a you know incredible impact on me um my standards you know went i mean i didn't have any standards other than just my um kind of eclectic uh, knowledge of violin making um before that but having spent the time there meeting some of the makers that were there starting to be able to work on great italian instruments and other you know european instruments while i was there um all became kind of part of the package of how i approached uh, my work um did, did that mean i didn't sometimes I, I made plenty of mistakes along the way you know you kind of forget to be sequential or um, organized and or make hasty mistakes i mean it usually comes down to being efficient um yeah order of operations will get you every time yeah yeah um <laughs> but i think it had a big impact on me for sure yeah so that kind of bleeds into my next thought of what comes to mind when you think about the available information on restoration when you started in this field uh, compared to what's yeah. available now? I mean, it's, there wasn't anything. I mean, when the Sacconi book came out, that was like, you know, Nirvana. I mean, we had, we had the Heron Allen book. Mm -hmm. We had, uh, there was another book by a guy named Robertson, I believe, or something. Uh, I remember uh, I still have it in my, bookshelf uh, and then then that simple book that i used the uh, you can make a stradivari a stradivarius i think it was entitled uh, it basically that just had line drawings there were no photographs in there and and each each um each chapter each section was one page long of text that was it so carving a scroll you know you'd be you had one page and some basic diagrams, and that was it. And you, but fortunately, I had a violin. I would, I played violin, and I had a violin to look at. So I, it's not that I didn't have a three-dimensional object that I could use, but it was pretty basic. Now, I mean, think of all the plethora of digital oh, yeah. information that we have online, plus the all the books now that are coming out on all these great makers and their families and. Photographs, I mean, the museums now, they have all these, um, obviously the, the CT scans of instruments that you can see inside and out, you know, it, there's no comparison. I mean, it's, it's um, you know, there's almost an overload of information <laughs> to some extent now. Would you say that there's also a culture change from when you started to now? Well, the VSA, I think, really was the first... So the VSA was founded in what, 17, 1974, <laughs> 17, 1794. Yeah, that was, uh, um, no, 1974, I believe was the official, um, you know, beginning. And the first competition was 1975, I know, um, in Ypsilanti, Michigan. Um, I think it was, it was the beginning of the VSA and then other organizations like the Federation and, and you know, others now around the world where sharing information became kind of an acceptable thing. Uh, before that, it was keep those secrets. Don't let anyone know what 
what you do because it might give them an advantage if they happen to know what you do. Of course, you don't have anyone else's secrets, so you're kind of it, it all depends on who your teacher mm-hmm. was. You know, who who did you apprentice with? Now it's you know who who can you um, make friends with and and connect with at workshops and so on. Uh, so yeah, and that started in you know in the seventies, like I said, but not not until really the eighties and maybe a little later that it really come to full uh, fruition with the uh, you know the Oberlin workshops and, and similar um, opportunities like that. Now, did I hear that you were? early days invested in getting Oberlin started. Is that correct? No, no, I, I was not involved with starting it. I, that was Chris Germain. Uh, okay. You know, it was originally, uh, you know, Nico, um, uh, Negosian. Negosian. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but he went by Nigo. Uh, okay. and yeah. he started the restoration workshop at Oberlin. And when he passed away, Chris, continued Chris Germain continued but then wanted to change it he wanted to get away from just the restoration and repair focus to making and that's um, that started at the end of uh, 90s 1990s so like 97 I think it was something around there and I remember being invited and but I wasn't able to attend until the following year so I I think I attended the second year uh, of the making workshop at Oberlin and, and I've done others too, the, the acoustic workshops there, uh, the, the setup, it used to be a setup workshop. Now it's restoration, I believe. Um, but, um, mm-hmm. so that was a, that was probably the main, um, uh, continuing ed for me that, that kind of really had a big impact on my life besides, you know, being at Vicars and, and some of the other, connections I made after that. What a long career. I love how you have taken a little bit of knowledge and you kept building and you kept exposing yourself to other people's knowledge and collaborating and building and building and building. And now here you are, an an award-winning maker and current VSA president. Past president now. (laughs) Oh, you know what? The website says until 2024, so I, I'm sorry that I'm incorrect. Well, Julian, Julian now is is president until so it's two year term, and I started in 2020 November, okay, up until November 2022. So the last convention was my last. So I'm past president. I still have responsibilities, but uh, Julian Cosman uh, Cook now is is president. You know. Well, we'll be in good hands with him, but thank you for your time. Um, I do. What was that, Jerry? I was going to say, yes, thank you, Bill. It's been a pleasure having you here. Well, it's been my pleasure. Uh, Thank you for letting me share a little bit of my story. Uh, I hope it's, I hope it's an inspiration for some. Yeah. You know, I know that this is always the, you know, I do have people come to me frequently, you know, uh, people interested in violin making and, and I try my best to talk them out of it. Um, <laughs> and it's only because you know that I mean, it's one thing to have it as a hobby. It's another thing to try to pursue it as a profession. Yeah. And if someone comes to me and say they're interested in being a professional violin maker, I, I, I try to discourage them only because they have to really want to do it. And if they really want to do it, then I'm more than happy to help them pursue that goal but the the thing is it's obviously it's an incredibly difficult um profession just like many um to make living at a successful living at and you you have to have um abilities so certainly uh but then you also have to have connections and and pursue those abilities through other people being part of that process. And that's, you know, what I tried to do, of course. Um, like I said, it, a school is probably the best place to start with something like that. But yeah, it, it's, um, it's, a, it's been a fun journey, that's for sure. Well, I don't want to part without saying I got to meet you this summer at one of the Learning Trade Secrets workshops and immediately knew this is a kind soul. This is a lovely human being. 
And uh, I, I just found you to be really impressive and really clear with your words. And you seem like someone who's done a lot of introspection to get that clarity. And um, I wondered if you had any thoughts on what it means to be where you are now, where you're leading workshops, you're having people apprentice under you, you are serving as president. Could you talk a little bit about those roles and what that means to you, where you are now? When I was approached uh, as far as being president of the Violin Society of America, I had, I felt it was time for me to, to pay my dues uh, since the VSA had <laughs> such a big impact on my life. I somehow avoided being on the board for, for decades. Uh, and uh, eventually I was approached to join the board and I said, uh, yes, it's time for me to do something um, and, and, and give back. Um, and then, of course, there were situations where I ended up becoming president a lot sooner than I thought I might be. Um, but that was also part of that. It was it was the least I could do to kind of um, repay the debt I felt I owed the violin community, not just the VSA, but that was a big part of it. I'll never forget that first convention I went to in New York. I went and visited all these violin shops, these big violin shops there. And I was just this beginning violin maker. I had this, I had this viola that I had made of uh, my fourth instrument. And I had the, the wherewithal or the, the gumption, I could say some other words, but I had the wherewithal to <laughs> the, the, the blind uh, naivete maybe to go and go to these shops and, and get their take on it. And they were all very helpful and and giving of their time and these I was nobody I mean I had just I hadn't I didn't have a letter of recommendation or anything and so I never forgot that that these great restoration and makers uh, were willing to spend time with me sometimes up to 30 45 minutes you know uh, of their day maybe they saw some talent there and I you know I hope that was part of it but it's still I was just nobody and um so that has stuck with me all these years. And so as I started to establish a bit of a, a career and, and some, you know, uh, knowledge, I guess, I felt it was the least I could do is help other people in that that were pursuing that similar type of um, endeavor. You know, that's uh, so I think it's it's, you know, what what you give comes back in many ways. Um, and um yeah. I guess that's sort of part of my philosophy. There's, uh, I, I try to do it in business too. You know, just because someone doesn't buy one of my instruments, it doesn't mean I, I write them off. You never know what maintaining a relationship with someone down the road will bring. It may not be the right instrument mm -hmm. for them, but that, that doesn't mean that it may not work for someone else that they might recommend to, you know, that type of thing. So it's, uh, I don't know if it's, paying it forward or it's just being a, a decent human being, I guess. Uh, but I, I, you know, I certainly want everyone to succeed and I, I don't begrudge other colleagues succeeding, you know, so it, it, it but hopefully that has come back and, and, you know, it works also in my favor down the road, hopefully, but you know, who knows? Yeah. You know, I'm up in my ear, years now, so um, it's it's a little different uh, situation than it was, you know, 20 years ago when we were raising kids and and then you know paying for college and things like that. Um, it's a very different situation when you get to this point in life. It gives you flexibility to do more of the things that are important to you. You know, so that's been a privilege, you know, to be able to do that. Like, I mean, workshops is a perfect example of being able to be part of that learning trade secrets. I mean, that's such a, a great opportunity for, I wish I'd had something like that when I was, you know, starting out, uh, you know, 40 years ago or no, it's 45 years ago now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, your time was super helpful to me to get my arches correct. And I, I've been working on my final graduations. I'm, 
I'm so close. <laughs> I'm I'm doing like the the final bits where like it's it's generally right, but you got to go back and get the, this little high point and this little high point more correct. Um, so, and I still have photographic notes where you just like drew on the inside of the violin the general graduations, and I'm referring to that. Um, but on a bigger note, thank you for all that you do for to give back for this community. Thank you for the time. Thank you for your efforts. Thank you for your kindness. Um, it's it's really a pleasure to know you, Bill. Well, I, you're much too kind, I have to say, but I appreciate your you're saying that because maybe I'm not as big a jerk as I think I am sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I appreciate that. Thanks, Rosie. Yeah. And what you guys are doing is really great. I mean, this is amazing with this podcast. Thanks. It's fun for me. <laughs> and how it, how it's bringing the community. I mean, I, I know our community already has a lot of cohesiveness, but this certainly can't hurt and even bringing it closer together and giving other op opportunities to people to, um, you know, um, check in and see if this is something they really want to do down the road. Yeah. Well, I, I'm certainly, I don't know how it's benefiting other people, but I'm certainly learning a lot. So I appreciate it. Yeah. Well, congratulations well, uh, to you. Thank you. Jerry, do you have anything else to add? No, I think you said it all. Bill, okay. thank you very much for, for willing to be part of this. Well, like I said, it was my pleasure and certainly my honor to, to be part of it. So, yeah, you guys take care. Yeah. Thank you. You too. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Greetings, Homo sapiens. I've got with me Ryan Davidson from Handcrafted Market. Hi, Ryan. Hi, Rosie. How are you? I'm great. I am happy to see that handcrafted.market is going so well. You've got lots of people in the community that can create their own shops. They can buy and sell. Um, they can sell the specialty things that only people in this industry need. And you've got a new announcement. I do. A while back, we were able to secure um, the ability for makers or clients to finance instruments. But now we've extended it so a maker or a small shop can invoice a client right through our website in their shop. And right then and there, they can give them financing up to 17500 on an instrument. So this can, you know, this is great for the maker in their little workshop or even for just a small shop um, that doesn't have access to that. Absolutely. You're making a professional online representation for more people out there. And I thank you for what you're doing. So guys, hop online, see what all the fuss is about, set up your own shop. You go to handcrafted.market and uh, we'll see you there. Hello, Homo sapiens. I'm here with Jackson Maberry. Jackson is the maker of Dr. J.G. McIntosh Rosinate Oil Varnish. I was wondering... If you can help us understand what a rosinate varnish is and what it can do for a violin's appearance. So a rosinate varnish is an oil varnish where the resin component is, instead of a natural resin, a modified rosin. Uh, in this case, modified either with a metal ion attached to the molecule or a metal ion and a dye molecule attached uh, to the rosin molecule. And the big thing that it can do for you and for your violin's appearance is that because rosinates are a perfectly transparent delivery vehicle for color, they allow you a great deal of flexibility when it comes to the overall look of your finished instrument. Guys, to get more wonderful JG McIntosh rosinate oil varnish products, you can visit woodfinishingenterprises.com. Thanks, Jackson. Thanks, Rosie. This is 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 this
And speaking of history, hopefully we'll have a third part to this series of Project Blue Book where we interview someone or maybe two someones about the past 30 plus years Mm -hmm. of violin restoration. Yeah. As much as the Vice Art book is a great reference, just like any book, it doesn't matter what that book is, it's stuck in time. Mm -hmm. And we want to talk to some people to see how things have changed. How have we changed? How have we grown? And uh, we look forward to doing that for you. You're the perfect person to handle this next bit. Uh, You are one of the restorers who's, who's pushing into the new territory of what's possible. And I'm really looking forward to it getting very nerdy. You know, that, (laughs) that special magic you bring of knowing all the technical bits. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm going to go off a little bit, uh, off story. I love your brain so much, Jerry, (laughs) to the, to the point, like I get, I get irritated. Like in, in the last year, there was one time where, um, you, you're so detailed and you have such a great memory. And I was researching something for one of our episodes Uh and, um, I got a little off course and then you're like, no, no, no check page so-and-so of this book. And I went back to the book that I had read and I had underlined this specific section and I had forgotten. And I was so upset. (laughs) I was so annoyed at you, but that meant I was really annoyed with myself. (laughs) Um, And, and that bleeds over into the way you do work. You have got, you've got it locked away. You, you know, that order of operations, you get it down. And uh, so I'm looking forward to watching you do that with this next piece about how we build from here. Man, I was just going to sit down with a cup of coffee and chat with some people. That's some pressure. (laughs) (laughs) You remember it all. Uh, I will say before that, uh, in our March episode, we are returning to the Pernambuco, Pernambuco, Still can't say it right. That subject. Uh, <laughs> myself and Brandon Godman are meeting with Young Chen to discuss what is ongoing, how the vote went with CITES, how it affects you guys out there. And I'm uh, really excited. I don't know why, but I, uh, for some reason, I'm very passionate about this subject. It's a big deal. So, yeah. So, uh, Thanks, everyone, for joining us once again for season five. It's insane. (laughs) Season five. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I've enjoyed the journey. I'm looking forward to more of this. I'm looking forward to getting to know all of our hosts better and continuing in our collaboration. And I hope that there is, as a result of this, better knowledge out there for all of you, better connection out there for all of you. Thank you for being Homo Sapiens. Bye. (laughs) Bye, Jerry. (laughs) Homo is an all-Luthier podcast produced by Rosie DeLoach, Brandon Gottman, Jason Peoples, and Jerry Lynn. The show is edited by Jason Peoples, music by Invoke Sound. If you enjoy our show, you can help us out by leaving an iTunes review or becoming a Patreon member at patreon.com slash homopod, where you can get your very own Homo swag. We'd love to hear from you, so reach out at mail at omopod.com or call the Omophone at 240-686-5345. Thanks for listening. <laughs>